Revelation chapter 2, uh, if, you, if you are a first-timer here um, or new at least to the series, uh, you've been here before, uh, we've been in a series entitled Christ's Last Words. We've been looking at Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 um, and what Christ is saying uh, to seven actual churches of those days. Uh, but in, in essence, not only the actual churches of those days, uh, they probably relatively um, accurately model all the churches of today. If you took around, if you took a survey of different churches or if you looked at different churches, some of the things that you would see in these churches uh, back uh, several thousand years ago, you would see in our churches today absolutely the same thing. And guess what? Then if you looked inside of those churches, you would see Christians that pretty closely resemble the seven churches. I, I think there is a reason. There's a prophetic experience that we're seeing here. Uh, there's an actual legitimate, um, there were actual uh, locational churches that we're going to see here, geographic churches in different places. We're going to see through these passages. We've seen already uh, Christ speaks to the pastor, the messenger, the angel, the leadership of the church. He usually if he's going to, uh, and some he does, he commends them for certain things. He says, man, I, I know your deeds. I know that you've done this, and you've done this, and you've done it well. He goes, but I have something against you. Then he'll point out something uh, that, that needs to be changed, and then he will give them a challenge to repent, to change your ways. And then he says there's a reward. Basically, if you do change your ways, here is the reward, and here, here is what it is. The first week, uh, we looked at Ephesus. And remember what Ephesus was? They were, they were hard at work. They were theologically pure. They did all of those things. But what was Ephesus' problem? Yeah, they had lost that love and feeling. And uh, that sounds like a song. Um, but they had lost that love and feeling. He says, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. How many of you remember last week who we looked at? you remember what, uh, what they were? They were one of the two unique, uh, uh, unique churches that had something that wasn't in there of those things that I said he said to every church. Anybody remember last week? There was nothing negative that was said about them. And part of that was is because they were kind of a till-the-end church. They were till death do we part. They were a suffering church. They were persecuted, and they had stayed faithful to the end. So, uh, man, persecution will purify you. It'll, it'll purify you. It'll get all the bad apples out. They're like sitting here. Those that just want to play along and play church and, 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 and enjoy uh, the blessings as God blesses. And there's always, we've seen this in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. When God blesses his people, even unbelievers who are around them should be blessed and are blessed. And, and man, but you persecute believers. Unbelievers are going to say, I'm out. And that's what we saw. And so Jesus just gave them a, a commendation. He said, man, that's, that's, good, that's good and that's good. And, and you are faithful even to the end. And so now we come today uh, to a different church. And I guess if I was going to title this, I would title it uh, Slip Sliding Away. And uh, how many of you know uh, the idea of uh, or the phraseology that that's a slippery slope? You, you, you got to be careful because if you go over that, it is a slippery slope. Anybody been uh, snow skiing with your kids? 
and uh, you're teaching your kids to, uh, to, to ski and, 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 and you've had them over on the bunny slope and it's time to take them up and then, you know, you kind of ski in front of them and they ski to you and about that time that, that you say, all right, it's time for you to go, but, but, um, but you know, you want to weave back and forth across the mountain and, and what happens? There always comes that every parent that has taken their kids skiing for the first time, there's always that shock in your heart when it seems as though they do what? And you're like, oh, no, please stop. Somehow, before you get to those trees, before you get to those trees, stop, right? Why? Because when you get over the edge of that thing, uh, you're going downhill. I've noticed that you are going downhill. And there comes a point in our lives as believers that, um, that if we aren't faithful to God in, in, in staying away from sin and not embracing sin, we will go over a slippery slope. And guess what? That's where Satan wants us to go. And if we aren't careful, we will pick up momentum. You know, we will pick up momentum. You don't have to work hard. Listen, guys, we don't have to work hard, especially as men to make mistakes. I find that mistakes come pretty easy in my life. It's not making mistakes. It's not sinning that I constantly uh, have to. Why? Because part of what it is, Paul says, there's that war waging on. As soon as I stop fighting my flesh, guess what? My flesh says, let's go, right? That's really the way it is. And when we look at this church today, we're, we're going to see that, um, that Christ chastises them for the way they are living and the way they are acting. And so let's read it, uh, and we're going to pick it up in Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to read you the whole message, then I'm going to come back and, and break it down to you. But this is Christ uh, speaking uh, to the church in Pergamum. It's a legitimate church. It's a real church. It's an actual church of the day. Uh, notice what we pick up here. It says, the angel of the church at Pergamum, right, uh, to the angel, this is Jesus writing to the angel of the church in Pergamum writes, These are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword, different than anything we've seen before. Uh, we've seen holds the stars in his hands. We've seen some other things. Wait, now the guy who is speaking is holding a sharp sword. That's going to tell us something about what we're going to hear. He goes, I know where you live. That's kind of a scary thought. I know where you live where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that, they, um, so that they ate the food, sacrificed idols, and committed sexual immorality. We're going to talk about that story in a second. Some of you may know it. It says, Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Remember, we heard those a few uh, uh, couple of weeks ago in Ephesus. Remember, the Ephesians did not embrace what the Nicolaitans taught, but here, right here, these guys, some of them did. And he goes, you held to the Nicolaitans. He says, repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. 
And he says, whoever hears these words, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of them the hidden manna. He says, I will also, listen to this, give to that person a white stone with a new name written on it. And I will just tell you right now, that is probably one of the most difficult things to translate in this whole passage. One of these, the white stone with a new name on it. And he goes, known only to the one who receives it. So here's the thought. Uh, sin's a slippery slope. As we look here, uh, let's talk about the church. Uh, let's go back and break that down. Look at, uh, look at verse 12. It says, to the angel of the church of Pergamum, right? Uh, the angel, we've said it earlier, it's talking about the messenger. That word uh, angel means messenger. could be talking to the pastor here, to the leaders. Uh, but to the angel of the church, then Pergamum. Uh, if you want to write this down, Pergamum means married. It means marriage. And um, so let me ask you a question. As believers, what are we? There's the most beautiful metaphor in all of Scripture that is used of that union between Christ and the church, between the believer and, and Jesus. What is that union referred to? We're the bride of Christ, all right? So here you have a church, and Pergamum really means marriage or commitment or uh, having a relationship. And so he's talking to someone saying, you're married to me. It's a church. And so that's why I think the beauty of what Christ is speaking here, when I say he's speaking to these seven actual physical churches, but he's speak, speaking, to churches, speaking to churches of all time because seven is the church of, of uh, the number of completion. Seven is the number of completion. But he's also talking to individuals. My guess is as we look through this room today, we could probably find some guys of what we already look like. We can find some guys who are kind of like Ephesians. Man, they would never walk away from God's Word. They would hold fast to theology and conviction. But you ask them to show love and compassion to someone who is lost or someone around them, they're not going to do it. And Jesus would say, repent uh, and, and change that. As we looked at it uh, last week, um, man, the suffering church. There's some guys in here, and, and I said it last week, and I'll say it again. It seems like some guys have a, have a life of suffering. It seems like some guys have a life uh, of struggle. And it seems like some of you other knuckleheads, it seems like every time you turn around, the sun's always shining on your face and the wind's always at your back and you're getting the promotion and everybody's healthy, wealthy, and wise. And, man, guys like me are jealous of you, right? Uh, but here we come to another church that we're going to talk about that there's some good things that we're going to see. Pergamum means they were married, they were uh, committed. And uh, if you look at here's the problem that we're going to see. They were tolerating sin in the church. They were tolerating sin in the church. But not just sin. Everybody's got a personal. It was open sin that they were tolerating in the church. We're going to see more about it. Uh, that's the problem. And uh, uh, it was a difficult thought. Now read on. Notice, notice the character. He says, these are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. And that word sword, we've already seen it in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. It says, in his right hand, uh, he held the seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. If you go back to Revelation chapter 1, talking about Christ there. As Christ is walking through the lampstands, it's a, it's a, it's a picture of Christ uh, who, uh, uh, who is the coming bridegroom 
walking through his churches, inspecting his churches, uh, the lampstands that are there. And it says that what? He holds the seven stars, but he also has a sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Now, it's interesting as we start talking about that phrase of the one that is speaking right here, if, if a double-edged sword is being talked about, judgment may be to come, right? Judgment may well be to count, come, and that's exactly what we say. If you look in um, a little later in Revelation, in Revelation chapter 19, uh, talking about the Word of God is the Word of God uh, is the sword. If you look at 19 verse 13, it says, He is dressed in a robe that is dipped in blood, and His name is the Word of God. If you go, to, go down two verses, Revelation chapter 19 verse 15, it says, Coming out of His mouth, is a sharp sword which he will strike down all the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Over in John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus is talking. He says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who has sent me, hears my word, believes in God, has eternal life. And I love this, what Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 24. It says, will not be judged. So as believers, we don't have to worry about that. We will not be judged, but we've crossed over from death to life. If you look at what Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 48, exactly the opposite. He says, there is a judge for the one who rejects his son. So notice, if you want to stay away, if we want to stay away from the judgment of God, we accept Jesus, and we accept God who sent his son. Does that make sense? And we've crossed over from death to life. We've avoided judgment. He said, but if you want to see God judge you, reject his son, right? And so we think about this idea. So there's a judgment coming. And what is the judgment that is going to come? It's probably that within the church, there was a mixture of believers and unbelievers. Now, I want you to know that in and of itself is not a, not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, churches lose and even believers lose their effectiveness when we completely withdraw from the world. Part of being salt and being light is we've got to be in the darkness. Does that make sense? We want lost people in our church. We want them coming to our church. We want them in your life group. We want, we want guys who are unbelievers coming into this class, guys. And, and guess what? When they come in here, it's going to be a little messy. We want that. But what we don't want is then to let an unbeliever come up here and teach, hey, guys, we're just kind of all built to sleep around. And guess what? And one group embraces that idea. That's different than having unbelievers in here, but allowing them to teach and allow them to talk and allow this group over here to say, you know what, uh, we're going to go commit this sin and we're going to do this and, and someone else to begin to teach some aberrant theology. Well, you know, I know Jesus was a son of God, but he's not the only son of God. Does that make sense? See, it's one thing to have people, believers, unbelievers come among us and to be uh, with us as we point them to the light. It's another thing for us to let them rise to the top and to teach false doctrine and teach in false ways and lead away from us in immorality. 
And so that's what Jesus says. He says, I come to you with judgment. Uh, but if we want to ultimately know those who pass through the fire and ultimately out from under judgment are those who accept Jesus Christ as his word. Now, as we continue to read on, if you pick it up in verse 13, he says what? He's talking to the angel, the church, the messenger there in Pergamum. He says, the one who holds a sharp double-edged sword. Now, notice what he says. Here's kind of a commendation. Remember, I said if there is a commendation, it's right up front. It's kind of like what we do with our kids. Hey, you did a great job. Exactly. But, all right, so this is the great job part. He says this. He says, I I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my word. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. What is he saying? What what is he saying right there about their hometown? It's an evil place, all right? He says, man, you, the hometown mascot of the high school team is Satan. All right? I mean, they had little devils on their helmets and devils on their shoulder pads and devils on their jersey. Man, this was a church that was planted in the middle of of Satan's home. Now, Joe, how would you like to be a real estate agent there? All right? You're selling, hey, who lived there? Well, Satan kind of lived here. That's kind of his ranch right there. All right? I mean, what an incredible thought. He's saying this is a great church planted right here in an evil place. If you think about it, you, you don't want to say this right now, I uh, would normally, but it's a church planted right in the middle of an immoral, ungodly, Satan-worshiping city. And he goes, you haven't turned aside. And he goes, man, what an incredible thought. He goes, in a dark place, in a dark city that is overwhelmed by Satan, you've held strong. He says, even, listen to this, when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred. He says, you even had one of your own who was martyred for your faith. And you didn't shrink back. And I love what he says, Antipas, my faithful witness. How many of you know what that word witness is? Anybody know the Greek word for witness? Martyr. My faithful martyr. Stephen was called a martyr. Remember the first deacons? Uh, one of the first deacons, it was, he was martyred for his faith. He says he was a faithful martyr. That word martyr simply means witness. It means that he was a faithful martyr who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. And uh, it's kind of interesting as, as we look through that. Uh, they were faithful. He says, you held fast. You held fast. You hung on. Man, when, when Antipas, even when Antipas was taken out from among you and he was, he was killed for his faithfulness, you held on to the truth. And that is a great thing. And uh, uh, as a martyr, he's, he's called a witness. He's just like Stephen that we saw and uh, referred to in Acts chapter 22, verse 20, as we reflected back on He says, And behold, the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed. And I stood there. This is Paul talking about his life. I stood there giving my approval 
and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. This is Paul reminding, before he was Paul, before he was a follower of Christ, I was standing right there giving hearty approval to those who were throwing stones at Stephen. He says, hey, I'll get your jackets. I'll hold your coats. Y'all kill him. And, and now he's saying, man, this is another one. Antipas was the same thing. We don't know a lot about him, but here's what we do know. He was probably taken out. He was probably told to recant. He was to- probably told to renounce your faith in Jesus Christ or you're going to die. You know the church knew what was going on. And remember when uh, Peter and uh, uh, John were taken in for preaching the gospel and, and they told him, don't preach or you're going to die. And what, did, what was their response? Is it better for us to obey God or men? And that's exactly what we see here. Antipas went out and said, I am going to make, maintain my faithfulness. And they killed him. So let me tell you what, this faithful church had a vivid illustration and a vivid example that Satan in this town wasn't playing around. That the people who were worshiping Satan in this town, they were not playing around. They had seen a martyr right there in their eyes, and they had remained faithful. How many of you think that's a great thing? Just imagine if we lived in a place we, we cannot even imagine. Imagine being a Christian in Iraq because I'm trying to remember the numbers. I've written some blogs on this. So I, think, I think just it wasn't a decade or a little over a decade ago, there were like 2 million Christians in Iraq, and now there's maybe 300,000 or something like that. I mean, the numbers are shrinking. Sure, some have left, but many are martyred. Imagine if Cottonwood Creek was planted on the, planted on the north side of Baghdad. And we all sat in here and had memories of our friends who had lost their life for their faith. How many of us would still show up? How many of us would still be here? Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a little different, isn't it, than us, than us to sit here and think about someone. How many of us would still be here? And Christ says, you're still a church. You're still faithful. And he goes, even one of your leaders is taken out in stone before your very own eyes, and you remain faithful. That's a good thing. Now, there's always, here's the, here's the but. You ready? You ready? Here it is. It's the but. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. All right? Uh, it's not there's one thought. Uh, Ephesus was basically, but I have one thing against you. You've lost that love and feeling. All right? That's what he says. I have one thing against you. Now, here he says, I've got a few things against you. And what are those few things? He's going to tell them for us. He says, I have a few things against you. There are some, and I want you to hear this. Everybody say some. Not everybody. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they uh, ate food, sacrifices to, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, 
you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, uh, the Nicolaitans, uh, we've talked about in, in, in the Ephesians. We don't know a lot about them. There are a bunch of people that guess. Uh, there are some who think this Nicolaitan, uh, if you go all the way back to the first deacons uh, that um, they were selected, uh, there was one uh, with that name that some have uh, believed throughout hi- history that at a certain point he turned. And, and what did he turn toward? Uh, really towards sexual immorality, towards uh, an understanding of free grace, unlimited grace, God's saving grace. But he said, you know what? If we really want to see God's grace abound, we have to see sin abound. Remember, Paul addressed that in Romans. Paul says, hey, uh, should I go on sinning? Anybody complete this? That what? Grace may abound. Remember, Paul addressed this idea. And so there are some who think um, uh, that this Nicolaitans followed one of those early deacons who who just kind of decided, really, if we really want to see God's grace most manifested in our life, the best way to see God's grace manifested in our life is sin a lot, right? Then God's grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. There there are those who believe. We really don't know if if that was who they were following, but we do know this group of people. They embraced the idea of, uh, of eating meat that was sacrificed to idols, which was addressed also over in Corinth. We also know they embraced sexual immorality. And so he says, there are some of you who follow the Nicolaitans. All right? There are some of you who follow them. But then jump right before it. He says, there are some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they may have, that, that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. So there are some who follow the Nicolaitans. There are some who embrace the teachings uh, of Balaam, who taught Balak. Now, how many of you know the story of Balaam and Balak, or at least a little bit? How many of you, okay, so I got one to raise. How many of you know there was a time in the Bible where a donkey talked? That's the story, all right? Here's the story, all right? Balak, Balak is kind of the king of Moab, the children of Israel journeying out of Israel, all right? As they are journeying out of Israelites, the Moabites know that the children of Israel are coming, and they have heard in advance they have heard in advance that, um, uh, that God had been blessing them. And that, man, for them to make it out of Egypt and, and walk away with the spoils of Egypt, clearly God was blessing them. And so what happened is um, Balak, basically the king of the Moabites, comes to Balaam, all right, and says, Balaam, I know you're a prophet of God. Here's what I want you to do. I want you, instead of blessing the Israelites, to curse the Israelites. And he goes, why do you want want me to curse them? He says, because I know if something doesn't change, they're going to wear us out. They're going to come through here, and God is going to bless them, and they're going to beat us. I've heard the things, the mighty things that their God has done for them. Well, Balaam, being a prophet of God, says, I'm not going to do that. Well, guess what uh, Balak says? How about if I give you a bunch of money? He goes, let me think about it, right? How many of you know prophets for hire, right? 
Profits for hire. He goes, well, if you put it that way, uh, this couldn't be that bad of a gig. And so first he says, hey, I'm not going to go. And uh, then here's what happens is uh, uh, Balaam initially says, when, when the king of the Moabites, Balak, calls for Balaam to come, Balaam says, go tell your king I can't speak anything against the children of Israel uh, other than what God tells me to speak against the children of Israel, so I'm not coming. Well, so his messengers went back. The king wasn't happy with that. The children of Israel were closing in. And so the king says, well, let's send some more people down there. And he sends some higher officials. It's like, you know, kind of Congress showing up. And all of a sudden, Mitch McConnell walks in your office, and you're the junior senator. And, uh, you know, and he goes, hey, here's really where I, how I want you to vote for this thing. So they send, and this is exactly the story, they send some high officials. And he goes, man, I'm not going to speak against the children of Israel anything more than God wants me to speak. And so he sends them back. Then Balak, the king of Moab, the children of Israel are coming closer, gets more angry. He sends more people and offers more money and offers everything. He says, listen, I need a prophet for hire. Balaam says, oh, you didn't say you were going to give me that much. Let me come think about it. So he journeys over there, and Balak says, here's what I need you to do. I need you to prophesy against the children of Israel so the Moabites will beat uh, the children of Israel. Well, guess what? Balak says, I don't know that I can do that, but here's what I want you to go ahead and do. I want you to set up. And so he takes him up on a mountain. He says, I want you to set up seven altars, and I want you to sacrifice um, basically a bull and a ram on each altar, do it on seven different altars, and I kind of think, kind of think it's interesting. In the middle of talking to seven churches, you go back and you read the story that was written long before the Old Testament was canonized, before Christ ever came to the earth. Uh, we even have a translation of it into the Greek and the Greek Septuagint. Uh, the uh, as as we so he goes up there on the mountain. They pray. Then Balaam goes back and prays to God and says, "God, hey, listen. Uh, I know I typically don't do this, but what I'm asking you for is I'm asking you for the ability to." place a curse on the children of Israel so they won't destroy my new friend, Balak the king. Well, guess what God says? I'm going to recommend you not do that. It won't go well for your soul. And so he goes back to Balak and he says, hey, I can't do it. And Balak said, how about a little bit more money? He goes, let me go check with God. So Balaam is not the kind of guy that you want. Now, the part I left out in the story and all of my excitement is when he was making the journey from where all the high-profile guys came and said, the king wants you to come see him, it says, oh, I didn't know you were going to give me that much money, so he gets on his donkey. As he's riding down the road on the donkey, the donkey, all right, how many of you have ever ridden a donkey? All right, they're not the smartest things in the world. The donkey actually sees a messenger of God, the angel. But, but Balaam doesn't see it. And so the donkey veers off the road. It's funny, you go read the story. What does he do? He gets off and beats the donkey, all right? I mean, it's a perfectly natural response. The donkey sees something, gets the donkey back on the road. Guess what? The donkey's eyes sees what? The angel of the Lord, messenger of the Lord, standing there with sword, saying, listen, I'm not going to do it. So it's funny because you can see this happening with the donkey. I mean, Balaam is so out of touch with the Spirit of God. He thinks this is all a natural happening. It says that the donkey rolls over and begins to rub and press his leg up against a wall. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Anybody ever been on a horse, a horse that does that, or a donkey? That does it. Well, guess what Balaam does? He beats the donkey, right? And then all of a sudden, Balaam sees the angel and realizes, man, the donkey. And the donkey basically looks at him because Balaam's sitting there cursing the donkey. And the donkey says, look, fool, I'm saving your life, all right? 
Anybody ever don have a donkey like that? Any, any of your kids ever said that? Something like that? Look, fool, I'm really saving your life. And so here's what happens. So back up on the mountain, he goes back and asks for God and asks for God. Even when he tries to curse the children of Israel, God won't let him. But pretty clear, here's what he says. He tells Balak, he says, I cannot speak anything to the children of Israel except, except what God tells me to, to say. But, he says, so I can't destroy them. He says, but if you want to get them, send the hottest Moabite women down there. Let them hang out around the soldiers. They'll succumb to sin, and God will do your business for you. Anybody know the end of the story? It's exactly what happened. The men started looking at these Moabite women going, hmm, that's pretty nice. And Scripture says they committed sexual immorality. And it says God lit them up. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying, just like Balaam taught Balak how to defeat the children of Israel and the soldiers of Israel, he says, some in your camp are listening to the teaching of Balaam and Balak, and they are moving off into sexual immorality. Guess what? The Nicolaitans were doing the same thing, right? So this church had a massive problem with immorality that was clearly open and approved and taught. Certainly, I will guarantee you, within our church, we have isolated incidences and hopefully wish they were more isolated and more incidental uh, of guys that blow it up, guys that make a mistake, that guys that, that do this, and women that do the same thing, right? We've got the... But... We don't ever affirm it. We don't, uh, you know, the, the lead, we don't let the leadership uh, walk in open, blatant immorality. If we did, guess what? Christ would roll through me and my mind and my dreams, and he would say, I'm coming after you. And it's not grace I have in my hand. It's a double-edged sword coming out of my mouth. Does that make sense? And so he's talking here that God is speaking to the leaders of the angels of the church. He says, there are those that you are letting teach and act and influence the flock in such a way that some, we don't know how many, but apparently a significant enough group of them were going and it was open disobedience to God, eating um, meat sacrificed to idols, and uh, they were uh, openly involved in sexual immorality. Now let's continue to go on. So what does God say? Uh, what does Christ say? Jumping down. Look at the next thing. Uh, here's what Jesus says. So you also have some that hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now here's the correction. Here's what he said. Uh, now I want to remind you that five of the seven churches we're going to see uh, are told to repent of something. The only two that are not was last week, the suffering church, and in a couple of weeks, the church at Philadelphia. 
the loving church. So the suffering church and the loving church are the only two of the seven that he doesn't say you need to correct something, and here's the repent. So here, here's the idea of verse 16. He says, how do you respond to that? When you know there are those among you that are your leaders, that are teaching people astray, that are living. He says, repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Man, that word repents, uh, and, uh, repent, all of a sudden, the, uh, the tone of the message has changed. It's become intense. It's kind of that conversation from time to time you have with your kids. You're kind of, kind of trying to drop the hint, and you know, you're trying to, you want them to get it right. You want them to, to see it the way you see it and hear it the way you hear it and correct their actions. And when that doesn't happen, sometimes you have to amp it up. And you say, I want you to look right in my eyes, and I want you to hear what I'm saying because here is about to be what happens. And if this isn't what happens. The heavy is coming. Do you know what I'm talking about? He, the, the tone has changed. He says, repent, get them to repent, or I'm going to show up and everybody's getting a spanking. Yes. Yeah, well, yeah, it also, if you're going back to Hebrews there as well, the way to address it is head on. You know, the way to address it is head on. Matthew 18, uh, someone you're talking about dealing with sin, Matthew 18 gives a good principle. First of all, go to that person personally, and, uh, and if they repent, great. Then it goes away. Uh, then the next thing is you, you you take a group of the people and you try to challenge them that way. And and if they repent, great. Uh, if they don't repent, then then you then you kind of take it to the church. Uh, typically, in in our day and age, uh, what we have a tendency to do if someone has hurt you or sins against you, we have a tendency to tell it to the church, gather a group, and then run them off. That's why a lot of times it doesn't matter. You know, we, what do we do? We, we tell our prayer group what they did to us, right, instead of handling it the right way. Now, now the other issue is also today because you have the freedom and, and you, know, you have churches on every corner. A lot of times, even as soon as you start to deal with someone's sin, they're gone. You know, part of the problem here was these sinners had stayed, and they were exerting influence within the church towards their sinfulness and towards their struggleness. Let, let me go ahead and get through this. We're at five minutes. Um, so here's the challenge. And I love this. He's repent or else I'm going to show up and uh, you've got to deal with the sin. You've got to deal with those people that are leaders in your life. Notice what he says in verse 17. He says, whoever has the ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna I will also give that person a white stone with a new name on it, known only to the one who receives it. That hidden manna, we all know in the Old Testament of the children of Israel were uh, fed with manna. 
If you'll also remember, and you can go see it in Exodus chapter 16 and then referred to again in Hebrews chapter 9, that some of that, uh, some of that manna uh, was gathered up and placed in the altar and carried with them just as a reminder of God's faithfulness through the year. That's why it's referred to as the hidden manna. It's not something that all of a sudden the children of Israel got to go see whenever they want to. It wasn't there set out in the museum. They just knew that there were some that was hidden. And he goes, man, for those who hear, you're going to have that hidden man and you're going to consistently be fed by my grace and my love and my word. And then notice that he says, uh, not only will I give the hidden manna, here's the hard thing, the white stone with a new name on it. Um, boy, I read several commentaries on what the white stone uh, means. Here, here's what we do know. And there are a lot of good ideas of what it means. Here's what we do know. The new name. I love this idea, and no one knows except the one who receives it. So what's written on this white stone? No one knows except for the one who receives it. It's kind of like when people, I talked about it Sunday, I referenced the end times when people say, hey, when's the world going to, you know, if Jesus didn't know and the angels don't know, I don't figure I can figure it out. And he, he's just kind of pretty clear right now. I'm going to give a white stone. We can go through a lot of things. Obviously, uh, we know once we are saved by grace, we are made whiter than snow, the stone that we get. I love the idea that our names are written in stone. They're written in the Lamb's book of life. Uh, what does the Lamb do? The Lamb, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So I read a lot of commentaries on what it means. Here's what we do know. To receive the white stone with a new name is a good thing. To get the double-edged sword is not a good thing. But I do think it's interesting because um, even if you think about the double-edged sword, it's, it's interesting that Christ says, I will come and I will make war against them. Remember, some were evil. Some were leading the people astray. It's almost as if Christ is going to come through and he's going to carve a path between those that are faithful and those that aren't. And that's a beautiful idea of what the double-edged sword will do, that either you deal with it or I will. Does that make sense? Either you deal with sin or I'll show up. It's going to be worse if I do it because then I'm going to have to call out more of your sin for not handling it. His, his, his current condemnation of them is that they put up with it. He says, deal with it or I'm going to show up. 